I love this series, that's so fun. Yes, I'm so excited. If you are new with us, I'm just gonna give you a couple caveats to ease the tension in the room because you might be thinking, man, these guys talk a lot about money. Now the whole goal for this series was to do a series on what Jesus teaches about money without asking for a bunch of money in the series. And so if you've ever been to a church before, normally when they do a giving series, it's because they want you to be giving financially, right? And like John said, we have, we're opening up out of COVID. Obviously we do offerings every week, but this series will not end with a big financial campaign. This series is not gonna end up with any elder in your living room asking for money. There's no building project attached to this. We are simply walking through several chapters in Luke where Jesus talks over and over and over and over about wealth and value and various types of things that people try to amass in a goal of becoming rich in this world. And we've said since the beginning that our definition of richness in this series is having a lot of what you value most. Right, and so if you value money a ton, riches in the eyes of that context is having a ton of money. If you value status, like Buzz talked about last week, fame, having followership, then being rich is amassing a ton of social capital. And along the way, we've kind of hit two of these topics. This is week three of five. You've learned a lot about what not to value, right? And none of this is rocket science, blowing your mind, right? Jesus says that wealth is not the big thing you're supposed to value in life, right? Becoming rich in the eyes of this world, social capital, is not what you should amass in this world. And so a big question that's starting to emerge is, okay, we've learned enough about what not to amass, what are we supposed to value? What is this thing that we're supposed to make the chief priority of our lives? If it's not money, if it's not fame, if it's not status, if it's not influence, what should I be seeking in my life to really have a ton of? And I'm gonna give you the answer right now, and then we're gonna spend three weeks talking about it. It's not money, it's not fame, it's not influence. The thing that the scriptures teach over and over again is the thing to be rich in, to amass tons of. It's relationship, relationship. We're not financial capital, not social capital. In a sense, if it's capital, it's relational capital. Having depths of relationship in this world. Relationship with God and relationship with others. Now, this is not rocket science. Are you thinking about the two great commandments of Jesus? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Relationship with God, relationship with others. Like John was saying earlier in the service, this is what we're supposed to capitalize in this life on, is a depth of good and godly relationships. In relationships, the good news, are free. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, there was a, a commercial that had that old song, the best things in life are free attached to it. And I don't even remember what the commercial was for. Obviously, they were trying to sell something. But they're singing the best things in life are free, and it's some family around Christmas tree opening gifts. And I remember being really impacted by this. They're like, yes, wealth is not money. Wealth is not fame. You may have said this. Riches to me is having family and friends and adepts of relationship, those things that money Money can't, what, buy, right? Relationships are free. But now I'm an adult, and I'm a little more cynical, and I realized that that was a commercial, and so they were trying to sell me something. 
I realize that now when I watch a commercial like that, that that Christmas tree set up with a parent and a kids, that is actually a very expensive day for those parents because relationships with your kids are not free. Kids cost a lot. I learned this after having six of them. Kids cost a lot of money. I remember growing up, people said, hey, I'm not sure if I'm ready to have kids because I don't know if I can afford it. And I remember thinking, what do you mean you can't afford it? Like the medical bills? Kids are free. Kids are not free. Kids are not free. Relationships, actually even all relationships are not free. Right? If you've been starting to hang out with your friends more coming out of COVID, you might start noticing that it costs a lot of money to maintain relationships with a lot of your friends. Relationships aren't free. Right? Hanging out with your kids, hanging out with your grandkids, hanging out with your parents, going on vacation, right? Entering into a dating relationship, you learn pretty quickly that it costs a lot of money to be in a relationship like that. Marriage is not free. Weddings are not free. And more than just the financial capital that it costs to be in relationship, real, true, deep relationships are actually really costly. You think about the things that have hurt you the most in life or the places that you've had to put yourself out there and it's cost you a lot in life. A lot of times it's revolved around relationships, having hard conversations, breaking a relationship, bringing confrontation in relationship, losing relationships because you took a stand or didn't take a stand or made a comment or didn't make a comment or gossip got involved or whatever it was. Relationships, as much as we want to value them, they're actually a really costly part of our lives. You know, so we've got all these competing values, right? We, we want wealth, we want status, we want fame, we want relationships. At the end of the day, all of us would say, I would trade all that stuff for deep relationships with God and people. But I think a lot of times it, it's easier said than done. My favorite book in the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes, probably because I'm a cynical person. And if you've never read Ecclesiastes, you should, but it's weird and crazy. But the whole journey of Ecclesiastes is Solomon talking about him trying to figure out what he values most. He said, you know what, I spent my life trying to amass wealth, and it didn't amount to anything. I tried to amass, uh, tried to do a lot of good in this world. I, I realized I couldn't really accomplish anything. I tried to amass power, and I did, but it didn't really mean anything. I tried to live for pleasure, and it didn't really give me anything. And so Solomon comes down with two conclusions in Ecclesiastes. He says, number one, honor the creator in the days of your youth. Right? Make your relationship with God a priority. And the second thing that he says, and he says this three or four times in the book, is that there is nothing better, he said, I learned, than to enjoy a nice meal with people I love after a hard day's work. He says, this too is the gift of God. And Solomon says, when the money is out the window or the power isn't there or the pleasure is not giving you pleasure, right? At the end of the day, all we can really ask for is having a good relationship with God and a good relationship with the people that we love. That should be our highest value. And so we're gonna devote the next three weeks to talking about how we can shift our value set from valuing money, valuing fame, valuing these other things, to learning what it really means to value relationships with God and others. And the reason we're gonna take three weeks to do this is because it's really, really hard. Because as much as we want to convince ourselves that relationships are free, living for relationships is act actually a very costly endeavor. 
And if you walk through the teachings of Jesus, you will notice that over and over again, Jesus front loads the concept that if you're going to follow me, if you're gonna value a relationship with me, it's actually going to cost you a lot. This is why relationships end up in a series on wealth and amassing wealth and value is because Jesus says that even though a relationship with me is free and valuable, it's gonna cost you everything. Now, this is one of those sermons that like, get ready, brace yourself, because this is big stuff. And Jesus, earlier in the book of Luke, we're gonna read chapter 14 in a second, but earlier in the book of Luke, a number of people come to him and they all say they wanna follow him, but over and over he tries to dissuade them from following them by showing them how costly it will be to come after him. Right? Someone comes and says, Jesus, I wanna follow you. And he says, I, I gotta warn you, if you're gonna walk my path, my path, I'm a, I'm a homeless person. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man, me, Jesus says, has nowhere to lay his head. So before you start walking down this road after me, my road has no street address. Are you ready for it? Right, the next person comes and says, Jesus, I wanna follow you, just let me go bury my father first. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's like, whoa. Next person comes says, Jesus, uh, I'm going to follow you. Just let me go say goodbye to my mother and my father first. And Jesus looks at this person and says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're going to come, you come now, you drop everything, it's going to cost you everything, and if you value me, let's go. So today we're going to talk about the cost of discipleship and what Jesus says it will cost you if you want to value him and relationship with him above all else. So brace yourselves. This is Luke chapter 14. And don't just brace yourselves in a way that it hardens your heart. Find a way to brace yourself and open your heart at the same time. That's on you. Figure that one out. I'll do my best to walk us through this text together and see if God can give us life through it. This is Luke 14 verses 25 through 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear let them hear. Amen. I'm convicted as I read this that Jesus would not make a very good salesperson. 
because Jesus is not making it very easy to buy the product he seems to be trying to sell. I read this quote from N.T. Wright, who's a theologian uh, in the commentary this week. He says, imagine a politician standing on a soapbox addressing a crowd. If you're gonna vote for me, he says, you're going to lose your homes and families. You're asking for higher taxes and lower wages. You're deciding in favor of losing all you love best. So come on, who's on my side? Wright says, the crowd wouldn't even bother heckling him or throwing rotten tomatoes at him. They would just be puzzled. Why on earth would anyone try to advertise himself in this way? Why on earth would Jesus try to advertise himself in this way? Now, it's important to know that Jesus is not trying to get you to vote for him. And Jesus is the king of heaven and earth asking you to follow him. He's looking for subjects. He's not looking for <laughs> your money, right? He's looking for someone to give all of their lives to him. And so I want to spend some time and look through this hard teaching of Jesus of what he says it will truly cost to follow after him. So we want to take notes, uh, write this down. This is the first thing that Jesus says, is that following Jesus means devaluing all your other relationships, this is his first sales pitch to us. This is the politician's first stump speech. Is following me means devaluing every other relationship that you hold dear. And we're gonna talk in these next two weeks about how to value relationships in light and under the umbrella of our relationship with God. But before we get there, Jesus makes some really hard claims. He says some words we wouldn't expect him to say in verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yet even their own life. If they don't hate all of this, they cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus uh, is not someone we would expect to say, hate your neighbor, right? His big commands are love the Lord and love your neighbor. So the question emerges, what does he mean when he says you need to hate all of these people if you really want to love him? A lot of the commentaries say that what Jesus is advocating is a love for him that is so lofty that it's a comparison that in every other relationship, hatred is the only way to describe it, right? I love Jesus so infinity much that I might as well hate everybody else. It's such a far distance because my love for him is so vast, so deep, so big, so large that it just looks like hate in comparison, you know, maybe that's it, that's probably the right direction, but at the same time, in the scriptures, love and hate are not just descriptions, love and hate are actions, and I don't feel like this comparison picture gives us enough action. What does it mean that we have to hate our family? It seems like we need to be actively hating the people we love in order to follow after Jesus. And so as I wrestle with that this week to try to put some teeth into what it means for me to teach you how to hate your families, I think what Jesus is advocating is something similar to the comparison game, that, that what he's saying is that you need to follow me and love me and be prepared that when you follow after me, some of the things that you're gonna do is gonna make the people in your lives think that you hate them. I was thinking about my own life, right? I don't feel like there's a lot of people who feel like I hate them, but I remember when I was first called to the Lord, when God first called me, coming to my parents and telling them I'm gonna to go to church now, I think I'm gonna switch majors at school, I'm not gonna pursue this degree anymore, I feel like I'm supposed to be called into ministry, I'm gonna walk away from all of this stuff, and I remember my parents looking at me with this look that felt like betrayal. 
right? Because they had put so much time and money and energy into helping me succeed, helping me get into a specific college, helping me go towards the degree program I wanted to. They had invested so much in me that the way they looked at me was almost like saying, hey, well, do you you not value anything that we did for you growing up? Do you not care at all about all the money that we put into your education? Do you not care at all about the values we instilled in you? I remember them asking, do you even make money being a pastor, right? Is that really a job? Is there an education here? Or are you throwing away, they didn't say it this way, but it felt like this, are you throwing away everything we gave you back in our faces? I remember feeling compelled to quit my job when I came to Christ and was called into ministry. And I had been working at this uh, this repair and upholstery furniture shop, kind of apprenticing there, and I was working to take over this family business. This guy had run the business his whole life and kind of taken me under his wing like a son. He did a good job discipling me in that trade. He wasn't a Christian guy, but, but really wanted me to take over his business, and we had talked about that for years. Seven years I'd worked for him. And I remember being called to ministry and not telling him because I was nervous to tell him. And then one day we were driving down Lake Chabot Road in the big box truck, and he said, hey, I heard... That, that you feel like God wants you to be a pastor. And I'm like, yeah, I should probably put in my two weeks notice then, right? <laughs> I did not navigate that season very well, that conversation very well. I did not thank him enough for all the work he had done to pour into me and build a work ethic in me. And I, I did not realize what it was gonna cost him for me to quit. Like he, a few months later, sold his business, moved out of town, right? Because I was his plan, right? And, and I walked away. And I remember feeling later as I reflected on it, like he must have thought that I hated everything he did for me. Because I just walked away because Jesus told me to come up here. I think about people in our church where, where God has called them to spend the retirement years of their lives overseas on the missions field. And I can imagine kids and grandkids coming to these grandparents and saying, do you hate your family or something? You're moving away from all of us? You're going to India when your grandkids are little? Are you sure? Don't you even love us? I can imagine Christian people feeling compelled to use their resources more and more for kingdom endeavors and changing their will, changing their trust to give all this money away to all of these different Christian nonprofits. And I can imagine children sitting with a lawyer after the parents passed away and thought, Did our parents not love us? Where's the money for us? I feel like I never realized how much mom and dad must have hated me. There's nothing for me and my siblings. But the truth is, they love their kids. Jesus called them to live and use their resources in a way that sometimes made people feel like they hated them instead of loved them. Jesus teaches that, that valuing our relationship with him means devaluing our relationships with everyone else. That's the easy truth, right? Now we're getting a little harder. (laughs) That's point one. Point number two is, as we keep reading this text, we see that following Jesus, he says, will cost you everything. Everything. When you read the list, it's everything. You know, I kind of get this picture as I read this text of someone at a poker table, right, with all these chips and realizing that Jesus is calling them to go all in, right? It's all yours, right? Here's all my money. Here's the shirt off my back. Here's my family. Here's my possessions. Here's my prestige. Here's my influence. Here's my social media accounts. Here's my girlfriend. Here's my boyfriend. Here's my identity. Here's everything. I'm going all in for you. And I think that's a a helpful example that following Jesus means going all in with everything, 
But I think the example breaks down because when you're gambling, going all in is a risk that you're hoping yields some sort of reward. Right? And an argument can be made that Jesus says later, if you lose things in this life, you'll gain so much more in eternity. But that's not a risk, that's a promise, right? I don't think Jesus is saying that there's a risk of discipleship. What Jesus is saying is that there's a cost of discipleship. I think one of the reasons that it's so hard to give up stuff for the Lord is because a lot of these things we love and we know we're not getting back when we give them to Jesus. Jesus calls you to walk away from a relationship. You're not getting that relationship back. Jesus calls you to walk away from some finances. You're not getting the finances back. He calls you to walk away from a lifestyle, walk away from a habit, walk away from a job, walk away from something toxic. You're not getting it back. It's not like you give it to him and hope he gives you it twice back. This is what you're losing to follow after him. Following Jesus will cost you everything. And Jesus puts it this way in Luke chapter 14. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? The cost of discipleship. Now, some of your Christian alarm bells are ringing right now because the gospel is not supposed to cost anything, right? It's the free gift from God. We don't earn it. We don't pay for it. You can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. That is all true. It's a free gift. In fact, Jesus is the one who paid for your entrance into his kingdom. He gave up his life. He shed his own blood. He gave everything. He gave up his status, his fame, his wealth, everything to come to this earth to die on a cross so that you could pay nothing and have everything. You can be the inheritor of the riches of his kingdom and it would cost you nothing. And that's still true. And Jesus is not saying this is what it will cost you to become a Christian. And Jesus is saying, but let me just tell you, if you enter into this relationship as a Christian and start walking down the pathway after me, it's gonna be a costly pathway. All right, that's, I love how he says that. If you carry your cross and follow me, you know who carried his cross before you're about to carry your cross? Jesus, right? He's saying, I I need you guys to understand that my pathway involves the crucifixion. My pathway involves suffering. My pathway, like I said earlier, involves homelessness. My pathway involves being betrayed by your closest friends. My pathway, Jesus says, involves having no money, no fame. My pathway is one that leads to humility, not glory, right? And so if you're gonna follow down my pathway, you're going to experience the same things I experienced on this earth. It's gonna cost you to follow after me. There was a survey that went out a couple years ago by a group called Gallup that does surveys, and they surveyed American Christian people and kind of asked them, how spiritual are you, right? How much does your faith impact your life? And of all of those who responded, 10% of American Christians said that their faith was something that they were deeply committed to, right? 90% had a whole spectrum of like, ah, yeah, I have a faith, but I got other stuff too. Or I got a faith, but it doesn't really impact my life that much. Or I got a faith, and yeah, I give some money, I go to church, but I'm not that committed to it, right? 10% deeply committed to Jesus. 90% kind of committed to Jesus. The question is, as we read the text, 
What kind of Christian is Jesus looking for? And a harder question as we look at the text is how committed to Jesus do you have to be to call yourself a Christian? Because if a Christian is someone who follows after Christ, if Jesus calls you to do something, you say no. If Jesus calls you to give, you say no. If Jesus calls you to live in a certain way, you say no. If Jesus calls for an aspect of your life to change, you say no. Can you really call yourself a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ if you don't follow him, is the question. And I think part of the reason that it's hard for us is because there are places in our life where we know it's gonna cost us to follow Jesus. And we like to kind of find kind of the place where we can live where we're Christian enough, but not too Christian. You know, I think of the people who, who live that way, and it's most of us, right? It's me half the time. It's, we kind of have one foot in, one foot out, and... And it's interesting what Jesus says about people who kind of build their Christian life halfway in verse 29. He says, for if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, talking about the tower you set out to build, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. I think what's convicting to me about that is that for, for many of us, most of us probably, based on the stats, most of us, have gotten to a place in our Christian lives where we've started to build a life for ourselves after Christ, but we have not been able to finish. Right? We spend a couple years in the church and everything's changing, right? Our language is changing, our habits are changing, our worldview is changing, our belief set is changing, and it's this fun adventure. Things are changing in our lives. We're sacrificing stuff, we're getting new stuff. It's a fun, transformational journey. And then eventually we hit this place where God starts calling us into things or out of things that we're not sure we want to say yes to. Sometimes it's stuff that seems silly, like go and talk to your neighbor about me, right? Or go and break off that relationship. Or I want you to wrestle with this part of your identity. Or I want you to do this with your resources. Or I want you to have a, a heart that cares for the poor and disenfranchised. Or I want you to live in a way that brings justice in the world in this direction, right? And, and we start getting to this crossroads where it feels like, okay, I started to build this Christian tower for myself, but I don't know if I want to sacrifice anymore. I don't know if I want to go down that road any farther. I kind of want to put, on my, put up my lawn chair and sit here, and maybe I can just wait here for Jesus to come back. It's so interesting, Jesus says, that if you live that way, people will ridicule you, saying you started to build, but you didn't finish it. You know, I think about the way that people in our country, in our world, view Christians like us. And a lot of times they ridicule us because we started to look like Jesus, but we didn't finish it, right? And if you've got friends like this, they bring the Bible to you. Like, didn't Jesus say that you need to do, 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 do? You're like, yeah, but oh, we don't take it that seriously. Didn't Jesus, wasn't Jesus poor? Didn't Jesus say that you had to give your money? Ah, yeah, but I don't know. And they ridicule you because you don't look like Jesus, because they know what Jesus has called you into, and you just don't want to admit it. Because you were able to start the project, but not finish it. 
And one of the scariest passages in the New Testament for people like us is in the book of Matthew, chapter 19. There's a, a man that comes to Jesus, and he's described as young and rich and powerful. And he says, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have a little conversation about theology, and the guy says, well, I believe all the right things. What else do I need to do? And Jesus looks at this man and what he values and what he holds on to, what he refuses to let go, and he says, there's one thing you like. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And Matthew 19, 22 says that when the man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He didn't want to let it go. And Jesus saw the thing that he valued that he didn't want to let go of. And he said, I want you to trade that in for something that you can value more deeply, a relationship with me that you will never plumb the depths of. And he just walked away. And Jesus responds with one of the most haunting paragraphs in the New Testament. He says, truly I tell you, to his disciples, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Because if being rich is having a lot of what you value most, and Jesus says, I want you to value me instead, let go of this, cling to me, and the rich person's like, uh-uh. Because I value you, but I value this too. Jesus says, you can't love God and money. You're going to love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and being devoted to the other. You can't value both. So, so we're at a crossroads <laughs> where the cost of following Jesus is real high. Our value of following Jesus has to be high enough for us to be willing to pay the price and let go of everything else. But I would guess if you were like me or like you or like you or like you or like 90% of people that Gallup polls and probably the other 10% who are lying to them, <laughs> that we start to understand the cost of following Jesus, but we're not sure if we can pay it. And so the question I want to ask as we close of this text is, what do you do? What do you do if you don't think you can pay the cost of following in Jesus? Try real hard, pray a lot, create a new, uh, like that Francis Chan sermon, the new middle road, right? Because the narrow road is too hard, so you create this new middle road. What do you do? One thing I never noticed in this text before is that Jesus actually answers that in Luke chapter 14. Right, he gives this analogy at first about building a tower, and then he gives a second analogy about two kings going to war. And the, king, the analogy he gives about two kings going to the war, in that analogy, the first king realizes he's not going to win the war. He says, suppose that one of you is a king, and you've got 10,000, and you're going to go up against another king that has 20,000. You've got to think, am I going to beat this guy? And he says, if I'm not going to beat this guy, in verse 32, if he's not able, here's what he'll do. He'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he'll ask for terms of peace. This picture of a king standing there realizing, me and my army is not going to stand up to him and his army. I've got no chance in this battle. What do I do? Well, what that king does is while there's still time left, 
he runs to that other king and says, can we work something out? Now, I, I do not believe that Jesus is calling you to negotiate the terms of discipleship with him. But I think that what Jesus is doing is saying that if you're someone who is not sure you can pay what Jesus is saying, it costs to follow after him, you need to as quickly as possible, as soon as possible, stop this charade and go and have a conversation with this king who's about to come and beat you if you really had to go to it with him. I wrote two sides of a coin that you can write these things down. One, if, if following Jesus seems too costly, don't settle for a discounted faith. You can't write yourself a deal. You can't say, well, me and God have these terms and I don't have to be all in for him. Jesus and I have an agreement. You, don't, you can't make up an agreement. That's not gonna work, right? If you wanna test this, change the terms of your rent with your landlord and then go say, hey, look, I wrote myself a discount. It's 80% off. They're not, it doesn't work that way. You can't settle for a discount you write yourself. Don't do that in your faith or with your mortgage. You cannot do that. Instead, Come to God and start to wrestle with the true cost of discipleship. Well, he's a long way off, right? None of you know it. This is the first week of the series, right? Some of you, God's a day away, right? Others of you, you got 20 years. Who knows how much longer you got? But while he's hopefully is still a long way off, go to the king and say, listen, I got to talk to you because I don't think I can do this. What I want you to do this week, if that is you, is to start to wrap your mind around what Jesus is calling you to step into and start to have a conversation with him, the king, about what it means for your life. And so I'm gonna give you three questions that you can ask to the Lord this week as you wrestle with what he's calling you into. And the question number one is, is a visionary question. What would it look like for me to be all in for Jesus? What would it look like? Take, take the fear away, Take the claws out for a second. Take, take the terrified nature that you bring to these conversations and throw it out the window just for a second because it's just a thought experiment right now. What would it look like if you were really all in? Or what would your relationships look like if you were all in for Jesus? What would your financial practices look like if you were all in for Jesus? What, what would the way that you view the world, what would your politic look like if you were all in for Jesus? What would the way that you navigate relationships with your family members look like if you were all in for Jesus? How would you work at work if you were all in for Jesus? Think through your life, take some time. What would it look like if I really believed this stuff? What would it look like if the fear was gone? What would it look like if I went all in for Jesus and I was willing to lose everything? What would it look like? And then ask yourself two harder questions. Question number one, what am I holding on to too tightly? What is that thing that you're scaring, scared he's gonna rip out of your hands? What's that thing that keeps being the wall that you hit against when you start to grow close to him? What are you holding on to too tightly? And second, what can I do today to release my grip on these things? What does it look like to be all in? What are you trying to hold back? And how can you start to let that go? We're gonna spend the rest of our series and talking not just about your relationship with God, but, but how you can be someone who gets rich in the sense of valuing relationship with God and others more than anything else and devoting your life to building deep, beautiful relationships. And in order to do that, we gotta be ready, like Jesus does halfway through this section, to say, are you gonna come down this journey with us? Are you gonna let go of all these other things? Will you follow after? 
And we started with this concept from a few chapters ago where a lot of people came to Jesus and weren't ready to follow him. I wanted to end you with a positive example of a person in the scriptures who was ready to follow after God. And it's a beautiful story. You don't have to turn there, but you can read it later this week. It's in 1 Kings 19. You know, there's a prophet named Elijah, and he was a powerful prophet. And as he was walking down the road, he set eyes on another man with a similar name named Elisha, And he goes and he puts his cloak around Elisha with this image to say, I want you to follow me. I want to disciple you. I want you to come after me. Kind of like Jesus saying, come after me, come after me, come after me. Elijah says, Elisha, come follow me. And Elisha says something very similar to something you may have heard in the New Testament. He says, Elijah, I want to follow you, but let me say goodbye to my parents first. Right, this is where Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is fit for service in the kingdom of God, right? But this is Old Testament. He says, I'm gonna say goodbye to my folks first. And Elijah says, all right. And so 1 Kings 19 shows us what Elisha does when he goes back home. Uh, this is 1 Kings 19, verse 21. It says, so Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen that he had been using to do the farming work that he was commissioned to do, and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and he gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. And when he said, hey, I'm gonna go and say goodbye to my folks, here's what he said. He said, hey, I'm gonna follow this guy and I know that you've been raising me up to farm for our family, but I have no need for this livestock anymore, so I'm gonna kill the ox, I'm gonna take all of my tools, I'm gonna destroy them, light them on fire, I'm gonna cook my ox on that fire, I'm gonna give it out to our community, because I don't need any of this anymore, because I am all in in this new way of life. I am following after Elijah, and I don't need any of this anymore. That is probably not you, that's probably not me, But man, that is the picture that Jesus is drawing on when he's telling people what he is demanding and what he's calling folks into. And so the question I have for you as we close is, what's he calling you into? And what's he calling you from? And some of you are new to church or maybe you've been coming for a while and you don't have a relationship with him at all. And you're thinking, man, this costs so much. I want to reiterate, stepping into a relationship with Jesus is free. All you have to do is say, I'm in. I turn to you. Forgive my sins. Give me new life. Show me a new path. I want to follow you down your path. I'm all in. And Jesus will say, come. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to act better. Just start to follow after me, and I will forgive your sins in this instant. I will give you a new life as you breathe right now. Come right now, and I will change you forever starting now. That's what it takes. But what I love about Jesus is he's not a sneaky salesperson. He says, hey, but you gotta know, and if this is you, you gotta know. If Jesus calls you to follow after him, it's gonna cost you. He's calling you into a life where you walk away from everything, and he will give you the faith you need at every step of the way to do that. But don't think that it's easy to prioritize a relationship with Jesus. It is hard. The value is infinite and beautiful, but it is hard. And if you've been living a life following Jesus, and you know it's been hard, you know it's been hard. But this is what he calls us to, a life where we throw everything else away and we make him our chief pursuit. We make our relationship with him our chief priority and our only goal in life is to follow him with everything we have. And so I wanna pray for us and then we're gonna respond in song. 
But I want to pray specifically for anyone in here who's like, man, I know that God is calling me into something or out of something, and I need the faith to do it. And if that's you, I want to pray for you right now. I'm going to invite you afterwards to step into our prayer room and let somebody else pray for you. But let's pray together that God would help equip us to be people who release it all and prioritize him as our highest value. Let's pray. Jesus, we think of those words of the great hymn that you paid it all. We owe everything to you. Our sin left a crimson stain, yet you washed it white as snow. We know that when you're calling us to walk into a way of life that is costly, the way of life that you're calling us into will not cost us more than it cost you. And you're not asking us to give up anything that you have not already given up. You gave up your life for our sins, and now you call us to give up our lives for you. You gave up your fame, your fortune, your equality with God that you could have grasped onto to humble yourself, take the very form of a servant, and live a life for us. And now you're calling us to similarly not take ourselves too seriously, not call our own resources our own, not call our own influence what matters, but instead humble ourselves and release everything in our lives, our power, our finance, our fame, and say we exist to serve, to develop relationship with you, with others, and to serve those in need. We pray that as we start to embark on this journey for these next few weeks of what it means to be rich in relationship, we pray that our richest relationship would be our relationship with you, that you would give us the faith to cash in on the things that, that we need to let go in order to grow more deeply in our relationship with you. I pray for anyone who's holding on to their own lives, that they would be reminded of your words, that anyone who wants to save their life will lose it. But anyone who loses their lives for your sake will find it. Let no one in this room be someone who gains the whole world and yet forfeits their soul. Let us release everything in our lives in this moment theoretically to you. And let us be humans that as we live life with you in this planet, that we release more of our lives legitimately and actually and tangibly to you. We pray that we would fix our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his glorious face, and that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Release us from our affections and let us find our affection in you and equip us to have new eyes to look at the things that you love in this world and pursue a life after Jesus in his name. Amen.